mercy to us. We thank you for this time together. We ask you to bless your word tonight as we dig deep into what you have for us. Speak to our hearts and give us ears and hearts to receive what you're saying. Give new revelation, I pray, in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen, amen. John chapter 6, and uh, we'll see how far we get. Um, somebody remind us of what the underlying or foundational purpose John had for writing his book. To reveal Jesus. So as we're going into chapter 6, you have to keep that in the back of your mind so that you can register that it's not just a narration of events, but that there is a deeper understanding that John is trying to portray. And as he wrote this 70 years or so after Christ had already ascended, he's looking back under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost and picking and choosing different things that different scenarios that he was a part of to support his position of Jesus being God manifest in the flesh the foundational argument of John chapter 1 so even when we read these miracles and different interactions in scripture we have to understand the underlying message is not just to simply for instance the first part of chapter 6 is the feeding of the 5,000 it's not simply the miracle of the breaking of the, the bread and the, the, the loaves and the fish there's other things that are happening that the Lord is trying to reveal through the writings of John so John chapter 6 verse number 1 after these things Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples, and the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may uh, take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There's a lad here which has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fish as much as they would. And when they were filled, he said unto the disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. And so... We've, if you've been around a church any length of time, you've, I'm sure, heard this story of the feeding of 5,000. We want to pull a couple of things uh, from that. Um, Jesus is moved with compassion upon the people 
but at the same time, he is recognizing an opportunity to reveal himself in a deeper measure to those that were around him. And uh, there was in this area a place where Jesus could withdraw himself from the people. And which lets me know something just on the side that as the one who loves people more than anybody still needed to pull himself aside from time to time and get away from the crowds. So also we, whether we love people or not, should pull ourselves away from time to time and have that quiet time. <clears throat> um, and the, the people had been following him, astonished at what he had done. And we've already shared some of the things in chapter five and then uh, even further and all of the miracles that coincided, if you read Matthew, Mark and Luke, that were happening at the same time, we can see that the people were amazed at what Jesus had been doing. And so he comes and sets aside, but then the people start gathering together. And uh, at first Jesus wants to stay away, but then he obviously sees the people gathering and uh, he is moved here in verse number five. He sees a great company. And so he sees the opportunity to prove a point to his disciples and to all of history as to who he is. There is uh, a couple of different arguments that theologians pose as to this miracle of Jesus. Uh, some of them regard this simply as a miracle in which he provided food. Um, and some uh, really say that this is a precursor to what we would call the communion or, or sacramental uh, supper, if you will, or meal. And then it was, then some also say that this was uh, just a miracle that was allowing humanity, humans that are normally selfish, be a part of something that's bigger than themselves and partake of something that's bigger than themselves. And uh, then there's those that, like me, that believe that Jesus allows this to take place because of what happens as we get later into chapter 6. We'll see the, the true meaning of what Jesus is trying to reveal. And so, it's interesting that uh, Philip is the one that's talked about here. And some people will say, well, the reason why he talked to Philip is because Philip was probably from that region, kind of knew where the fast food joints were, so to speak, knew where to get some dinner. And uh, <clears throat> But Philip calculates that it's going to take at least six months worth of finance to, to feed everybody that was there. And then Andrew shows up. So there are certain people that are involved here that I, would, I just want to draw out a little bit. Uh, first of all, Andrew. Andrew um, is an interesting character because Andrew is the one that in Scripture most often brings people or things to Jesus, mainly people. But he's the one that went and found Simon Peter, his brother, and said, come and see what I found uh, he's now the one that brings the boy that has the fish and loaves. And there is something about Andrew that you, you never hear him preach a message. You never, he's never in the argument with G, Peter, James, and John as far as who's the greatest. He's not considered the inner circle like Peter, James, and John. But he is the one that his main focus in his life was to connect people with the Lord. And uh, that mission or that responsibility 
that gifting is so powerful and, and we need to have more Andrews. Not, we don't see Andrew sitting down and breaking down scripture with people and, and debating like Paul probably did. But we see Andrew just saying, hey, listen, I know a guy. Come and check him out. And if we had more Andrews that were telling people that, hey, listen, I've got this friend of mine. His name is Jesus. Just come and meet him. See what happens. How many Andrews uh, would, would it take to, to flip our region upside down with just not trying to get people saved, not trying to get people fixed, if you will, all their problems, not trying to go up, just saying, come and find Jesus. And uh, so Andrew is here. The, the second person that, that is obviously here is this young boy. And uh, I, I don't know about you, but I think this boy was probably freaked out a little bit when one of the disciples, when Andrew came and said, why don't you come to me and see Jesus? <laughs> You know, the, the crowds and the multitudes have been crowding around him for days and weeks. And, and now this little boy who's probably just trying to, to blend in is getting called out and he comes to Jesus and he's got just a poor boy's lunch. Barley was considered uh, the bread. Uh, it was almost held in contempt. It was the cheapest kind of bread. It was the least expensive. And I believe that John references this and the Lord uses this opportunity because barley loaves were available to everybody. Okay? You know, I, I don't know what all the different breads are today. You know, what is more expensive than others. But the, the fanciest bread today, somebody that's living on the streets probably couldn't afford to go in and buy a loaf of, you know, $10 loaves of bread but they can get the cheapest bread. And I think what is the underlying message in this, is, is, in this uh, situation is that Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter how inexpensive it is, it's available to everybody. Even this little boy had the barley loaves. It's I'm available because he's, we're gonna tie this in at the end of the chapter when Jesus is talking that he's the bread of life. He's letting people know, not that he's cheap, but that he is available to anybody that wants it. And uh, I find that interesting. And so this boy gives up his lunch, his barley loaves. Um, and then this is also, um, we say fish. And in Minnesota, that has a connotation. You know, you're expecting to have, you know, largemouth bass, a walleye, northern, you know, salmon on a plate. And, this is probably closer to sardines or minnows. <laughs> These aren't huge fish, maybe a sunfish fry. And uh, so uh, they were probably just pickled from Galilee. It was kind of a normal food of that day. They would pickle the fish. It was not a luxury item that you found at Whole Foods. It was, it was pickled, it was stored, it was left over. Um, and then they were, and, and this boy probably had it. Uh, and the barley bread was actually probably to help get the taste of the fish down because it probably didn't taste very good. Pickled sardines. Um, the Bible says that they ate till they were full. That has, I think, two meanings as you tie this chapter together. And again, we're going to do that later on in the chapter. But I believe that the, the miracle 
was that Jesus would fill them and would satisfy them in their physical hunger. But he was getting, he was laying the foundation for a greater example at the end of the chapter that Jesus is not so concerned about filling our bellies as he is with filling our souls. And, uh, and then some people have said, well, he just kind of overdid it and blessed the disciples with, with you know, the 12 baskets overflowing at the end. Um, there, there's a twofold meaning for that. Number one, yes, Jesus goes above and beyond what we can actually handle. But number two is it was Jewish custom that when they would eat a meal, they would always leave some for the servants. There was always leftover. So even when they, uh, for instance, in the Old Testament, when Ruth and Naomi, and Naomi tells Ruth, go and just find a place at the, at the corner, and Boaz comes and tells the people, just let her be. That was part of the field that they would, they would leave for the servants and for the, 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 the poor people that would walk by. The, those that had their crops and things would always leave a little bit left over. And what Jesus was saying by leaving 12 baskets full left over was those that serve the people, I'm still going to supply your need if you're going to supply the need of the people. When you serve, you will be served. And we would do well to understand that when we serve people on behalf of Jesus, he's not just going to empty us out. He's going to fill us back up with the things that he's already pouring out. And so uh, I find that very interesting. Um, so then we don't really uh, see exactly what is totally done at the end of this, how he dismisses, you know, they, they eat to their full and they collect it. And then I don't know if the crowd just kind of slowly dissipates or whatever, but Jesus is going to have the opportunity for the disciples to go across the lake. And he's once again going to uh, seclude himself and pull away. So we're going to go into verse 14. And it says, those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. Okay, here's the, there's not a false statement given here, but there's a false motivation. Okay, and we're going to see that here in verse 15. When Jesus perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. We have to understand as people that not all statements are false statements. There's true statements with wrong motivation. These people recognized Jesus at that moment because of what he did as the king, the Messiah, but they didn't understand how Jesus was going to manifest himself as the Messiah. He, they wanted to take him and force him to become their king. Jesus said, that's not happening yet. I'm, I'm not setting up that kind of a kingdom right now. I'm doing something different. And uh, so their statement in for, verse 14, this is of a truth, the prophet that should come into the world, that is a true statement. Jesus was the one that was going to come into the world. But the motivation behind that statement was, okay, this is the guy that's going to set us free. 
This is the guy that's going to establish the kingdom. This is the guy that's going to help overthrow Rome. This is the guy. We need to set him. They were reverting back, if you will, to what the people of Israel did when they demanded God give them a king and God gave them Saul. And uh, Jesus said, we're not going down that path again. I'm just going to kind of step aside. And I'm going to go up into the mountain on his own. And when he was, when the even was now come or when the evening time, it's in between sundown and it is like, kind of like what we're in right now outside. When that time came, the disciples went down to the sea, they entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark and Jesus was not yet come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and 20 or 30 furlongs, uh, they see Jesus walking on the sea, drawing nigh to the ship and they were afraid. But he saith unto him in his eye, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. Um, we see that Jesus releases the, the people to, the disciples to leave, and he go by himself because he wasn't interested in debating the people of that day with the purpose of the kingdom. He was just trying to reveal the kingdom. And so he's, the disciples get in this ship and they're going over to Capernaum. He doesn't seem to show up. And then all of a sudden it's dark and they're on the sea. The winds begin to blow and uh, they see Jesus walking on the water. It's one of the most wonderful stories, uh, really, when you see what God uh, does or Jesus does when he steps onto the water. The furlongs is about three miles and it's about a four mile journey, four and a half mile journey across uh, the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Tiberias. And uh, when you see uh, that they're almost there, that's why it says when he kind of came into the ship, then they realized that they were at the other side of the lake almost immediately. And um, so we have to understand what is being said here. Sometimes in life, we think we're rowing and rowing and rowing, and we panic because we don't think Jesus is there. And Jesus shows up and we realize we were actually there. Uh, think about Gideon, think about Elijah, think about uh, David. Some of the, the things that they did back in those days. Think of Joseph, who was wondering what in the world I'm doing. Uh, I'm having these dreams. And I keep serving the Lord until just before he, you know, you're sitting in jail. Wondering, well, how is all my dreams going to get fulfilled? And Joseph could have given up at the last minute and said, well, it's just nothing. But when God shows up just at the right time, God's timing is always right. Does it mean that you were all on your own while you were trying to row across your sea? No, it just means that you're further along than you think. There's too many people that give up on their walk with God when they fail to realize, and they don't realize that if they would just keep pushing just a little bit more, they're right there on the edge. Okay, so they had already gone just about the whole way through Capernaum, and Jesus walks all the way across the water. And this is the parallel scripture where Peter steps out of the boat. And, then, and, and when, he's, when Jesus gets on the boat, the Bible says here, immediately they were 
Uh, I lost my spot. Then they willingly received him in the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land where they were going. It was, it was, they were there. Now, what would have happened had they given up halfway through? They could have been tossed all over the place. And they were in a panic because Jesus hadn't shown up. And they were in the middle of the storm. All of us have had times in our lives where we're in the middle of the storm and we're wondering, okay, Jesus, where are you? Why aren't you there? And I think Jesus does that for a couple of reasons. I think partly he does it because he wants to see, or he wants us to see that we're really stronger than what we think we are. Not because of our human strength, but because of our strength that we have placed our trust in him. When we have faith, our faith is stronger than we think it is sometimes. Our love for him is stronger than we think it is sometimes. And I think sometimes we get fearful because we think uh, things are getting difficult and Jesus has abandoned us and Jesus is wanting to let us know, number one, I haven't abandoned you and I'm going to deal with that here in a second. But number two, you know well enough of what you should be doing that when you do it out of obedience, it's going to be successful. Okay? Whether I understand what I'm doing or not, if I'm just... You know, those disciples just knew that they had to keep rowing. They just knew that they were fighting the waves and the winds. And, and when Jesus showed up, it kind of freaked them out that he was walking on the water until he spoke to them. And sometimes there's, we see things and we get scared and it's really just God saying, oh, no, no, I've, I've had you in sight the whole time. I know exactly what you're doing. I'm trying to show you that even in the midst of all this stuff, you and I are good and you're stronger and going to get through it. I wish there were some people that were stronger in, in like the disciples and fighting through the waves of life because they give up too quick. And see, God doesn't always, now I'm not talking salvation, I'm just talking life, okay? I'm not talking about beating our heads against the wall trying to get to heaven. I'm talking about just getting through the drudgeries of life, the overwhelming power and the waves of what we're going through. And sometimes we feel like we're getting ready to drown. Sometimes we feel like the waves are getting too high. But if you just continue to do what you know you're supposed to do, whether you feel like doing it or not, it's the scripture that says, he that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. That's not talking simply about getting to heaven. That's talking about getting out of the situation that you're in. And sometimes... I think we pray ourselves out of our situations prematurely and we miss what Jesus, if those disciples would have gotten a mile in and Jesus showed up, they wouldn't have built up the fortitude to continue their journey. And sometimes he allows things to happen so that we build up. It's kind of like an athlete that builds up their endurance. You know, I would be pretty safe to say that out of us that are in this room today, if we walked out of the building tonight and tried to run a marathon, not many of us would make it very far. Maybe the end of the sidewalk. And, uh, but I would also say that if we spent the next six months fighting through and training and eating right, doing we could maybe not do a full marathon, but at least a half marathon. I mean, you understand what I'm saying? We could train our bodies, we can train our minds, 
we can train our muscles to do things. Um, but if we don't, if we just said, okay, I'm going to run a marathon, but I'm only going to train one day a week. You're, you're not going to get very far in a marathon. Well, Jesus understands that. And life is a marathon. And I think he's revealing to us, again, I'm kind of reading into the scripture a little bit, but I think he's revealing to us that these disciples were almost to the, the finish line of their journey across the lake when he shows up. And he was, and I'm going to share this here in just a second, but he was there the whole time. He could see them. He was watching them. But when they just about get there, he comes in for the last push. And when he gets on the boat, everything is there right immediately. And it lets those disciples know that when the waves coming, that they're going to be facing when Jesus is crucified and when things get really rough and the church gets persecuted, that they have an enduring power, not because Jesus is with them, but because Jesus has planted something in them and has trained them to endure the things that they're going to face. And I think that we too often get too panic-stricken and we pray ourselves, oh, God, deliver us from this deliverance, when we should be praying, God, train us, mold us and form us so that by the time we get to the other side, no matter what we faced, we come out stronger knowing that you're there. And we have to remember that, again, that John is writing this several years after Christ. And uh, we're going to read now in verses 16 to 21, uh, the very present help in, in trouble. Uh, we, we just read that and, and tie that together here now. There's things that we can gather that John, I think, does this. Number one here in your notes, he saw that Jesus watches. Everything we do in life, Jesus is watching. Not in a judgmental way. Because I don't believe that Jesus is sitting there on a judge's bench, if you will. He's sitting there watching from a hillside, watching to see how we do, where we need to work on, how we need to see things. I think John realized that uh, all the time that they had pulled the oars, Jesus was standing on the shoreline just kind of watching them. You know, have you ever gone up into a mountain and looked out? You can see for miles. If Jesus was up on a hillside, he could probably see across the three-mile expanse. The reason why I know that is the, where our cabin is is roughly about three and a half miles across, and we can see all the way across without being up high. So I can see Jesus, and, and I think John is sitting there writing now 70 years later. Jesus was watching us the whole time. He's watching us. Our life is being lived with the loving eye of Christ on us at all times. Which lets me know something. When the waves get too big, he shows up. He always comes in at the right time. And so when we're dealing with life, we have to understand that if Jesus is watching, he is waiting to step in when we need him the most. Number two, he saw that Jesus decided to come. Jesus comes down the hillside. He watches, walks across the waters and gets into the boat, which lets us know that he doesn't just watch with a, 
unloving attitude, but he's, he's ready for when the time comes for him to step in. He's not some distant God that's standing off, letting us be to our own resources, but he's going to come when the time is right and he's going to show up and help us to victory. And then it see, he sees in your notes there, he saw that Jesus helps. He watches, he comes and he helps. Um, there was a lady that taught this lesson to her class of kids one day, and she must have done it well because a little bit after the, the class, a couple days or whatever, uh, it was a blizzard, wind, snow, everything. And this was in the old days where you didn't, you know, you didn't have a snow day, you just were at school. And, and uh, when school finished, the teacher was helping the children home and, and, uh, and sometimes she had practically to drag the kids through the drifts of snow. It had come down so quickly. And when they were just about exhausted with their struggle of getting their kids from the school to the house, she overheard this little boy that was in her class and, and half to himself, he, he mumbled this, we could be doing with that chap Jesus here now. You see, we can always be doing with Jesus and we never need to do it without him. He's always watching. He's going to come at the right moment. He's going to help us. But I want you to notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't take the disciples off the boat. He helps them get through the storm. Okay? It's a, it's a very slight shift in our mental thinking, in our faith thinking. But it's one that traps people so many times and hinders people so many times from the victory because they're praying to get out of their situation and Jesus is saying, I don't want you to come out of the situation. I want to help you get through the situation. And there's a difference because if you get taken out of the situation, you're not getting victory over the situation. You're getting victory from the, the, the situation. But if he comes and helps you get through the situation, you now have a victory over the situation that you were in. So the next time in life when the situation arises, you can think back and say, wait a minute, I overcame then, I'll overcome now. I dealt with it then, I can deal with it now. Where when we get delivered from the situation, we still haven't made it through. So now the situation arises again, we still don't have the wherewithal to get through the situation because we have no reference point because we begged Jesus to get us out of it. You see what I'm saying? Just that slight little adjustment of thinking and but how powerful that adjustment actually is. And then he sees that Jesus draws us to heaven. As John is remembering it, as soon as Jesus arrived, the, the keel of the boat landed, and he probably thought maybe back to Psalm 107, and they were glad because they had quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Heaven is a haven, and we can have a little bit of heaven on earth, which becomes our haven of rest, if you will. And so it's very important that uh, we don't disconnect what's happening here. There's a progression of writing that John does. And remember that there is a chapter and verse in the writings of the biblical day. And so this is one constant, continuous story. And so he's trying to interlace all of this together. You would think 
that the disciples wouldn't have had, have even questioned where Jesus was after seeing what Jesus did. Okay. And the people would have understood what was going on. Now the people decided, well, we need to find this guy. He was so awesome yesterday because he fed us. Um, and we need to look for him. And so in verse 22, the, the following day, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there, save the one wherein two his disciples had entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone. Howbeit there came another boat from Tiberias, nigh into the place where they did eat bread, and after that the Lord had given thanks. And when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they took to shipping and came to uh, Capernaum seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, You seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Uh, in verse 27, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Okay? They go looking for him, and he gets rebuked because there's two kinds of hunger that Jesus is now going to address. And these people have seen him move in the natural realm and were expecting him to continue to move in the natural realm. Okay? And this, there's a very key point that we need to draw out from this passage right now. There's two kinds of hunger that Jesus is ascribing to. Um, number one is the physical hunger that physical food can satisfy and the spiritual hunger that physical food can never satisfy. And Jesus' point was that all these Jews were interested in was physical satisfaction because they had been fed. In fact, um, the, the, the theologian Chrysostom, he said this, men are nailed to the things of this life. You cannot think about your souls because you're thinking about your stomachs. And, uh, and so the, one of the key things that we need to draw out here is we have to be careful not to consistently search for Jesus on a physical level, which is very difficult to do because we dwell in the physical or the natural. And what I mean by that, we are so earthbound and tied to the things of earth that we get overwhelmed sometimes with what we need for our physical bodies, whether it be victory over pains, aches, whether it be, uh, and when I say natural, I'm just talking even emotional, heartache, sorrow, things of that nature. And we dwell so much with Jesus and look to Jesus so often to say, God, heal me of this. Deliver me from this. Help me in this. Make this right here on this level. Lord, I, I need you to deal on the horizontal aspect of who we are. And these people didn't pay attention to what Jesus was doing and weren't catching the spiritual connotations of the miracles that Jesus was performing. They were only recognizing the physical attributes of the miracles that Jesus was doing. And so he's saying, you are only looking for me because you got full. 
Here's the key that we have to remember. There has always been a movement for miracles. And, and don't misunderstand me. I'm all about, I want to see miracles as well. But miracles are not the important thing. Jesus is the important thing. Okay? There are ministries that are built totally around having the natural need met with the miraculous, whether it be the healing, whether it be the sight to the blind, death, uh, hearing to the deaf, etc., etc., that all the ministry de is developed around having this physical needs met. And I want those physical needs met, but I, we can't allow ourselves to forget the Jesus behind those physical miracles. Okay? Yes, I want to see those miracles. But more than those miracles, I want to see people come into contact with Jesus. And whether Jesus heals me or he doesn't heal me, or let me use the words of the three Hebrew children of Daniel chapter 3, whether he delivers me or he doesn't deliver me, I'm still not going to bow. But there are some people that have gotten so tied together to the natural it, miracles pertaining to the natural realm that if it doesn't happen the way they think it's supposed to happen, then Jesus isn't doing what Jesus is supposed to do, or we're not doing what we don't have enough faith, or we're not praying right, or we're not worshiping right. Listen, we're called to do one thing, and that is connect to Jesus. Now, if Jesus leads me to pray over somebody to be healed, I'm expecting that person to be healed because Jesus is originating it. Okay? Do you understand what I'm saying? And I believe that Jesus uses the natural miracles not just to wow people, but to reveal himself to people. But the people that are only looking for the natural miracle, they miss the revelation. And when they miss the revelation, all they have done is alleviate some of their earthly pain. And it hasn't transformed them or changed them in their relationship with the Lord. I said this one time to somebody and their jaw just about dropped because they were real into all the, the miracles and stuff. And, and I asked them one question. I said, since the time of Jesus, all the people that have been healed, whether it be the lame man in Acts, whether it be blind eyes, whether it be deaf ears, whether it be people being raised from the dead, whether it be uh, people delivered from demons. What, I said, what's the one thing that all of them have in common for the last 2,000 years? And uh, they didn't really have an answer. I had, so I paused for a second. I looked at it and I said, they're all dead. Miracles that affect us in the natural, if all we, all we receive is the natural miracle, we are just receiving a temporary blessing until our life is done. Okay? Now, it's a blessing. Don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But what, I am, what I'm trying to get across to you is if we will receive the natural miracle but grab the revelation of who Jesus is and what Jesus is trying to do in our lives, all of a sudden, whether we naturally die or not, it's not going to be important to us. It's whether we spiritually live. Okay? And when we understand that, 
Uh, and again, please don't misunderstand. I'm all, I want to see miracle signs and wonders like the rest of us, but I don't want that to become our sole purpose because those miracle signs and wonders are temporary adjustments if we don't grab a hold of the miracle worker. Okay? These people were attaching themselves to barley and fish and not to Jesus. And Jesus rebukes them saying, you're only looking for me because you want a little bit more natural food, not because you're wanting what I am and who I am. Does that make sense? And, and, uh, and it's the same today. We sometimes do the, the same thing. We get so tied up with the natural that we miss the spiritual. And we forget Jesus, I think John is remembering this and he's putting this in here because remember what he wrote in John chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Okay? The whole purpose is to reveal Jesus. And what he's saying is, even after all this stuff, they're not recognizing Jesus. They're recognizing the miraculous, but they're not recognizing who he is. They're recognizing that he's a prophet, just like Elijah did miracles and Elisha did miracles and, and, and all of those things, but they're not recognizing who Jesus is. He's more than just a worker of miracles. He is God manifest in the flesh. And, and so now there's a transition that Jesus takes them on in verses 28 and 29. He says to them, first of all, he, he just kind of ignores the whole concept of how did he get across the sea without a boat. But uh, he goes on to say, you seek me in verse 26, not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves were filled. Labor not for the meat that perisheth. Okay, or in other words, what we were just talking about, the natural things. But for the meat which endureth into an everlasting life. Verse 28. Then said they unto him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. Now, when Jesus spoke of the work of God here, the Jews, because of their upbringing and their background, immediately thought of the concept of good works. Okay? It, it was their conviction as a Jew that a man living a good life could earn the favor of God. We'll see this later in John chapter 9, when the disciples themselves even asked Jesus, who hath sinned this man or his parents? Okay? They had the, the blessings came because of good works. The, the curses became because of bad works. They held that men could be divided into three classes. Those that are good, those who were bad, and those who were in between and those that, that could do a little bit of good, but then they fell into, and, and so these Jews are now asking Jesus, they're expecting a laundry list of things to make them good. When they ask about the work of God, when they say, we might, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? In other words, what can I do to elevate from the natural to the spiritual? And, and, Jesus responds to them in a way that they don't expect. 
He says, you need to believe on him whom he has sent. Okay, which in the whole discourse of John is talking about himself. You need to believe me. And God desires our belief in him. And I know that there are people out there that believe that that word believe just means I have to just mentally ascend to, yes, I, yeah, Jesus, you're, you're God. And, and I believe, but there's, there's a depth to the word belief. Paul would have used the word faith. And so what does belief or faith means? It means being in such a relationship with God that we go from a God-human relationship to an intimate friend relationship where we're not terrified that God's getting ready to blast us, but that there's a, such a closeness and proximity to the blessings of God and the heart of God that we're willing to submit everything that we are to him. That's, that's what he says. That's, that's what Jesus is saying to these people that are asking him when he says you, you need to believe on him whom he has sent. You need to come so close and intertied with me that what I say goes. And you submit your agenda and your aspirations over to me so that I can direct your path. Okay? Do you understand what I'm saying? And, and, and so how does believing in Jesus uh, tie all that together? It's because Jesus came to tell us that God loves us. Deity wants to restore humanity to that communion. The Logos became flesh. The flesh became uh, the thing that ties us together and is the, is the, for lack of a better term, it's the bridge that gets us from uh, being away from God to being with God. And, and, and Jesus is the, the flesh that God took upon him and became incarnate so that you and I could now believe in him and get so close to him that we are now united with him and we are in communion with him. But that new relationship changes the kind of life that we live because now that we know what God is like and the love that he has for us, that should trigger a change in how we live. And we must answer to the knowledge of who God is in our lives. It's why, to me, one of the blessing, one of the most blessed revelations that God has ever given me is the mighty God in Christ Jesus. That I understand to the, the depth that I can that God became a man for me. Because if it was just somebody else that was just if it wasn't God that was originating it if it wasn't coming from the heart of God and it was just another ritual I would probably be more apt to say mm, it's not for me but because I understand that the great creator the most holy being that there ever was became like me so that I could spend time with him that is going to change my life see there is a movement out in the theological world right now that basically claims and states that it doesn't matter what you do after you believe as long as you believe. I'm not, I don't sign up for that. 
It doesn't, what you do after you believe may not get you to heaven or not get you away from heaven. It's, but it should reflect what God has done in you. Our believing in him should be a reflection of the change, or the change in our life should be a reflection of the belief that we have that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. And when we get that revelation and we understand how much he really loves us, it should change us to be more like him. Does it make us perfect? Not in the sense that we're without fault. It makes us perfect in the sense that we become mature in him, that we have a deeper relationship every day with him. But there's a change. And, and here's the reason why. God is love. So if we are living a life that is loveless, but we come to a belief in him, we should become a person of love. Okay, let me show you how that manifests itself in reality. If we are hateful and grouchy and grumpy before we come to God, we should not be hateful and grumpy and grouchy after we've been with God. Because that's not how God is. And if we believe on him, which is faith, which is pouring all of our trust in him, that he's got it all together and I want to be more like him, then I'm going to have a smile on my face. Doesn't mean that I'm going to have good days all the time, no. But the, the, the overall meaning of who I am, it shifts and changes. And I become more like him because he's love. He's also holiness. He makes the statement in the Old Testament several times, be ye holy for I am holy. And I have often thought that that was a command of God to people. Okay? Lead be holy because I'm holy. It's a command. You do it. Okay? But I don't believe that that's what that is. I don't believe that statement in scripture that says be holy for I am holy is a command. I believe it is a declarative statement. God speaks holiness into you because that's what he is. And when you have a relationship with him, you can't help but to become holy because he will not dwell with you and commune with you because holiness cannot dwell and commune with unrighteousness. And so when it says, be ye holy for I am holy, it's not a command for you to figure out how to be set apart from God and, and, and do a list of do's and thou shalt's and thou shalt's and, and, and figure out what's holy, what's unholy. No, it's a declarative statement that says, I'm your friend. I'm in connection and communion and covenant with you. Therefore, you're going to become holy because that's who I am. And you're not going to even be able to help it. Okay which is a good thing because the Bible says all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. We can't get holy. There's nothing we can do that makes us holy because holiness is purity. Holiness is being set apart unto God. And you can say, well, I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do this. And that's going to be my holiness. That's not holiness. That's devotion. That's sacrifice. But it's not holiness because it doesn't make you pure. What makes you pure is being connected to the one that is pure. Does that make sense? And so his holiness comes out and then obviously his wisdom. Because if we're in submission to him and in communion with him and we're acknowledging him and we have faith in him, he will give us the wisdom that we need 
And if we don't have the wisdom that we need, he has promised us in the book of James that we can ask him for it because he giveth wisdom to all men liberally. So you see, this is more than just a conversation or an example of, a, of what's going on in that day. And we, we rejoice about the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 plus women and children. But, but Jesus and, and John is taking us to a whole deeper level of just having our bellies filled. He's, he's taking us to a level of intimacy that we can have with him that goes beyond just the miracles, just beyond the supernatural. We love all that stuff, but that's just, that's shallow. But there's a depth to the communion that we can have with him that he has. Now, the Jews don't get it. The, the people of that day didn't get it. And uh, in verse 30, they said, well, what sign are you going to show us in that we may see and believe thee? What, what dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Uh, they step in it here. I think I said it in my message on Sunday. When you debate with the Lord, you're going to lose. Well, they're in a debate here. Because Jesus makes a great claim in this passage that they have to believe on him. He's already established that God's the one that sent him. And now they have to believe on him. So he makes a great claim that the true work of God was to believe in him. And so now the Jews wanted proof of that statement. Now, we give them a hard time again, remember. This is written afterwards. We've got hindsight. We know the rest of the story. At the time, he was a carpenter's son from Nazareth. And so even these Jews, I, I can't blame them totally because I don't know what would happen if, you know, Bob the plumber walked in and claimed to be our Messiah. Make sense? You understand what I'm saying? But they wanted proof. Show us. The crowd then used manna in the wilderness as a springboard for their argument. And this is where Jesus was hoping to get them to. And where John is now writing this story 70 years later saying, ah, now I see what Jesus was doing. When I don't even know. See, John didn't write this in real time. So John is sitting there thinking, oh, yeah, when he fed all those people with that little meal then he had this conversation and John is starting to put two and two together and John is beginning to write this okay and so he, he now recognizes that Jesus is using this argument of the manna and the bread as a deeper statement in chapter 6 now and the manna had always been regarded as the bread of God. You can read Psalm 78 and Exodus 16. And there was a, a rabbinical belief that when the Messiah came, he would give the manna. And so Jesus is identifying himself again as uh, in, in a twofold manner. Number one, he said, he reminded them that it wasn't Moses that gave him the manna. You see, the Jews had 
what a lot of us have. They had problems with idolizing people. Because we get this vision or this view of what a person is by what they present or what they stand for. And we almost put them up on a pedestal. Well, they had put Moses up on this grand pedestal to the point where they say, in the wilderness, Moses gave us manna. Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus says, Moses didn't give you the manna. God gave you the manna. And then he told them something that blew their minds, which we don't pick up on by reading this story because we're not in, in that culture. We're not in that time. He basically tells them, and the manna that came down is not the bread of God. Totally blew their theological minds. They're the, what they had believed for generations, that the manna that came down was the bread of God. And Jesus was getting ready to tell them, no, 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 it's not the bread of God. It's just the symbol of the bread of God. It's the precursor to the bread of God. The real bread is going to be the bread in verse number 33, which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Okay? Now, tying what John has already established, what was Jesus saying? The Logos... God himself became flesh, dwelt among us from heaven to earth. And now Jesus is getting ready to say, I'm the manna. I am he who came down. You've been looking for a prophet to come. You've been looking for a Messiah to come and give you manna like they received in the wilderness. And Jesus is saying, that wasn't the bread of God. That was a symbol of the bread of God. I am the bread of God. A totally different, he, they were blow, he was blowing their minds because it was totally shifting everything that they had believed in forever. And he was, he was totally, and, and, and he's trying to do that again today. He, 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 he takes uh, all of our preconceived ideas, and we have them, all of us have them, different ones of how Jesus really operates. Okay? For instance, he's the peace speaker. And we think, well, that means he will bring calmness to our lives. Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus will get us into as much chaos as we'll get into ourselves. But the peace that he brings is a tranquility within the midst of chaos. Okay? We think sometimes, well, God, I need to feel you. And he's like, oh, no, no. I'm, I'm taking a step back. Because I'm wanting you to live what you know you're supposed to live. You understand? We get these preconceived ideas of what Jesus is. And what ends up happening is what has happened over the last 12 to 15 months is we have read into absolutely everything that is going on in America into, we've, we've placed it all within the realm of Scripture. From the political mess that we've been in for the last year to the, the, the pandemic, to the vaccine, to everything. And we've tried to put these slots in here. We've tried to read into it and we've tried. And the problem with doing all of that is we're missing the whole point. 
The whole point of everything is that Jesus is trying to get people's attention. Because Jesus isn't American. Jesus is Jesus. And what we're dealing with now in America is trying to, is God is allowing things to happen to shake us, not to cause us problem, but to lead those that believe in him, those that trust in him, just keep paddling the boat. The waves may be getting big. The waves may become overwhelming from time, but I see where you're at. I know what you're going through. I know what you're dealing with. And I'm just waiting to, to, to step in at the right moment. And he has been stepping in. We have to be wise enough to take a step back and say, oh my, he's done this, he's done this, he's done this, he's done this. Just for one example, I don't know about you if you've been watching lately, but in our church here at Spirit of Grace Church, for those that are online, Spirit of Grace Church, we have had people coming left and right. We have had so many visitors in the last six months because people are hungry for something that goes beyond the storm, something that feeds their soul and not just feeds their stomach. And they're hungry and they're thirsty for it. And we're seeing that pop up from Sunday to Sunday, from week to week. We're hearing testimonies upon testimonies of God doing some amazing things that go beyond just meeting the rent payment, but going to things that only, some, that only he can change, that only he can do. And we're going to be hearing more and more of it. Why? Because he is the bread. He is it's not just another miracle, it's him showing up. It's God himself showing up where we're at in order to meet the need that we have. Isn't that amazing? Praise God. All right. We need to, I know we're a little bit early, but that's okay. But we need to stop tonight because if I get into this next section, I can't stop after that section. <laughs> I've got a group six and, or seven and eight together with the rest. So we're going to stop for tonight and we'll pick up the rest next Thursday. Praise God. Isn't God good? Yes. And uh, he's doing a great work amongst us. Let's just bow our heads and ask the Lord to go with us this week. First of all, before we do that, does anybody have any questions or comments on the material so far tonight? Some of us have turned Jesus into our candy stick. And we have turned our faith into the thing that waves the candy stick in front of God trying to get his attention. And that's not what it was designed for. It was designed for a means of communion. Faith is really the tool or the instrument that God has placed inside of us. To every man he's given the measure of faith. And faith is the instrument of the tool that was placed, created in us to be able to reach him. That's why without faith, it's impossible to please him. Because it's, faith is the instrument that gets us across the chasm, if you will, 
Jesus laid down as the bridge, one mediator between God and man, but it's our faith that walks across that bridge. And so um, the, the, the key to faith, you know, I just, I've got, I've been tired of it, but <clears throat> of ministries and preachers that just, if you just have enough faith, God's going to do this and God's going to do that and God's going to heal this and God's going to do this. Well, how do they know that? Unless God has told them. And if God has told them his word is forever established in heaven, it doesn't matter where my faith resides. Okay? And I think it's because faith has become the tool in most people's minds to get God to do what we want God to do instead of faith being the tool or the instrument that gets us into his presence. Does that make sense? And uh, I think if we ever get back to a proper view of faith, that faith is about getting us to him and not getting him to us. When we get a hold of that spirit, that mentality, that aspect of faith, there's no telling what God is going to do among us because then we're walking into his world.